friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Not literally. That's from Julius Caesar. <laughs> no, but for real, uh, it's MC Lars. Thank you for tuning in to the second episode of the MC Lars podcast reboot. This week, as you know, features part two of my interview with MC Front a lot. We talk about the nature of art. We talk about touring. We talk about the creative process. It's a really interesting conversation. And as you many of you know, I love the guy. So anyway, without much further ado, this is my second part of my interview with... MC Front a lot. Peace. This is what I wanted to ask you, Damien. When did you first discover that you could like write some great lyrics and start rapping? Did you do music before <laughs> hip hop or? Um, well, let's see. In high school, I went to high school with Gabi, who we mentioned. Um, whose birthday it is today? And in in Berkeley, right where in I was born, Berkeley, too. California. You were born in Berkeley? Yeah, Alta Bates. You were born at Alta Bates? Yeah. Half my friends were born at Alta Bates. Where were you born, though? I was born on Geary in San Francisco at a hospital that doesn't exist anymore. Cool. Um, Sorry to interrupt you. I moved to Berkeley. Let's see, my mom. I lived in San Francisco when I was a baby, and then Oakland when I was a larger baby, and I think I was in Albany for a little while. But by the time I started school, I was in. By the time I started kindergarten, I was in Berkeley. Um, and I went to school there until I graduated Berkeley High. But anyway, in Berkeley High, Gabby and I... Gabby was a songwriter. Happy birthday, Gabby. Happy birthday. If he's listening. <laughs> um, and our friend Ben Block, who's a songwriter. And these guys were like talented musicians. And we always loved, you know, playing guitar and singing. I wrote goofy songs on the guitar. Gabby wrote like intricate songs on keys and, and guitar. You play guitar? Like campfire level. Uh, I didn't know that. I'm also way out of practice. We wrote songs and we put them on four track and that's my whole like interest in music. Like I wanted to be a writer, but all of my personal interest in music came from the technology. Like I was interested in home mm. recording. I was like enthralled by having a four track because like we were teenagers. We fucking loved music and recording artists and rock stars and rappers. Um, we were big Beatles fans. We loved the stuff that was coming out when we were in high school, which was 88 to 92. And those were some like golden fucking years for hip hop hitting nationwide. You had Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul, Public Enemy, NWA, um, Dell. The first Dell record came mm. out when I was in high school. Amazingly, he's like my age. Mm. He might be a year or two older than I am. But um, these recordings that you would buy at Tower Records were so precious to you. Plus, yeah. it cost so much yeah. <laughs> to get a CD. You know, they're like $18.99, which in $1990 is like $42,000. <laughs> and so it was like hard to get, get that much money together as a teenager. And we would buy these CDs and they're very precious to us. And like the idea that you could make something, they didn't sound like professionally recorded music, but it was music. Yeah. It was not just some people sitting around like singing into the little radio shack thing with the two hold down record and play at the same time. And it has a little built in mic, which those that sounded worse than, you know, doing the memo function on your phone. Of course. Right now. Yeah. Um, but four tracks sounded kind of fancy. They had a little preamp in them and you could get a microphone and like plug it in like a real microphone. And 
and do different tracks and do like record harmonies and different instruments and get your drummer friend to come do it and like all this shit. And we were, we made songs, including all kinds of songs, but we made our own rap songs on, uh, on the four track. And I did that all through college. Also, I had all my four track skills. So when I got to college, I jumped into radio where people were, we were still putting together, um, the carts and the PSAs on a, on half inch with a razor blade and tape to edit. Wow. Um, and I was like, "Mm -mm, I got a four track. I'm gonna make some fancy PSAs immediately get myself elected to the board of directors as the PSA director. And if you're on the board of directors, the college radio station shits your oyster, man, you can get a like nice time slot. Um, anyway, and, and, the, and I had bands in college, like a, a rap project with my friend Al Washington um, that we called Double Card. Um, I had a, actually, like, there was a good rap band on campus that won the Battle of the Bands and got to open the Spring Fling that Parliament, that P-Funk was playing. Like George Clinton and a whole fucking busload of P-Funk people. Dang. Um, and they played, you know, they... Nobody remembers who opened that show because P-Funk was going for four hours, right? But, like, we opened that afternoon's show. I, went, I got to go up for a couple songs with White Boy Drummer, which was the name of the good oh, rap band God. on campus. Um, they had a white drummer, so they, <laughs> they called themselves White Boy Drummer. I wonder if that name would fly these days. Anyway. That's cool. I thought for sure that was going to be the highlight of my rap career. Can't get any better than this. <laughs> uh, Didn't so Lin Manuel Miranda went to your college, right? Yes, after well after I did. But, yeah, uh, so you younger kinda, and much more accomplished. So you kind of set the stage. I wonder if he like. <laughs> he, I saw him quote Paul MC Paul Barman the other day on Twitter. Mm. I wonder if he's if he if he knew about the legend legends of that show back then. Doubtful. Um, because why would he? And there were rap bands, new rap bands every year because it was a college campus. But um, but I do wonder if he ever accidentally looked up like a Wikipedia page about famous rappers from Wesleyan and saw that there is the guy from Das Racist and me. <laughs> <laughs> and didn't um, Adam Adam Gorin go there too? Adam from Adam is Package. He was there at the same time as I was. I'm pretty sure he dated my uh, next door in the hall. Uh, neighbor, Jill, when um, she was a freshman. Wow. Or maybe after. So you, you, you met him then? Or you just yeah, kind of who he was? I'm pretty sure that's the same Adam who was always hanging out on my hall with Jill. That's cool, man. I think so. I mean, that guy's name was Adam and looks exactly like Adam from Adam and his package. <laughs> and he went, and I, he went to college there, so unless he has a twin who also went there. Yeah, yeah. Um, just wonder if I'm conf- getting the years wrong somehow. But anyway, we could Google it. You know, he's now doing. He's now teaching science in Philadelphia. Didn't he just have like a little? Didn't he just have a little show? A little yes, like at, anniversary uh, at, party show at Fest in um, Gainesville, and I got to open. Yeah, that's awesome. That was awesome, and I got to watch his show. And he was always such a big influence on me. Because speaking of like having a compact four track recorder, I always loved that about him. How he was, you know, doing that with punk rock specifically and like mm-hmm. making, like taking care of it all himself. And just the, the thing is like when you have, I found when you have one device in which you put your ideas, the, the content and the value of your ideas and your lyrics and like that exercise means so much more because you can't fall back on the fact that it's live music. You know what I mean? Mm. And so like it's watching you, watching you evolve over the years. It seems like 
you're you've always succeeded well with the live band and but it sounds like you would you would start a lot of the recording and writing by yourself is that true or what's your process been like so at the beginning of an album project I'll <clears throat> pull one of my one or more of my drummer friends slash bandmates into um like the so the band is three pieces plus me right there's two bass keys and drums there's various people who fill in for each other and the, or swap in and out over the years. So there's like a bunch of people who I think of as my drummer. Although the, at any one point, there's usually just one drummer on stage. Okay, so I'll grab a couple drummers. We'll go in the studio. I'll lay down just tons of them improvising or playing beats that they've had in their heads or whatever, right? I'll just track a bunch of shit over metronomes. And then I'll have that as my kind of bank and I'll chop that up, find the stuff I like, chop it up, start using that as if it, I were sampling records, right? Which nobody does anymore. It's too expensive. Unless you're MC Lars and you uh, <laughs> need to negotiate for The Passenger by Iggy Pop. Um, but most, most of us don't embark on such an investment. I just want to say that was a very fortunate and we got a good deal on that sample. <laughs> good. Glad to hear it. Um, so I will, I'll do that. And then almost everything else is electronic, like synths coming out of Gabby's keyboard, um, synths coming out of Bad Spella's ideas that he programs in Reason and um, Ableton. And then tons of drum machine programming, essentially, they aren't aren't drum machines anymore, but um, those are also synths. So a lot of programming from Bad Spella, sometimes I'll work with another DJ for a track. Um, but mostly it's me, Gabi and bad spell. And we're, we just work out a bunch of ideas and start hacking them together and start kind of building song shapes. And once I have like a basic like groove for a, a chorus and a verse, um, for each of these sort of things, once it's taken that much shape, um, I will just sort of loop those and write and put down some scratch vocals and then we'll keep refining and, and fixing stuff from there until it's like a nice shiny song um, or I run out of time. Uh, Then the record's like done and we're getting ready for tour and it's like, oh shit, how are we going to arrange this into something that a three piece sort of funk funk band could play? Mm. And that's always the question. And luckily I have worked over the years with such fantastic musicians that they always make short work of it and they're like oh well we could do this or we could do that or i know what we're gonna do and then it's like boom yeah they they will vibe off each other discuss it amongst themselves as competent instrument players (laughs) and work up great arrangements and i will just sort of lean on their glory i mean once in a while they'll be going in a direction that doesn't work for me but it's really rare that's that I'm directing them at all. So it's been rare that you've performed with just a track, right? I've only maybe seen you do that once or twice. I try not to do that just because I much prefer to um, not have to kind of vouch for every eye in the audience, you know? Like I don't want, I don't want all that responsibility. Yeah. I want to go like hide my head in the corner for a minute and catch my breath if I need and like you guys can watch Ken fucking boogieing while he does a keyboard solo or whatever. I especially love that I can like forget how the next verse starts for a quarter of a second and not ruin the songs. The mm. band could just take it for four bars, you know? Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, when I, when I have to, I will perform solo. And when I can't 
uh, stands to perform solo, but I can't bring the whole band. I will bring a drummer and we'll, we'll do it with all the rest of the tracks on the, on the laptop. And that's fine too. That's, I think that's a step up from the, from me by myself. Most rappers are happy to and good at commanding all the attention in the room all by themselves. Um, and I love that. I wish I were in that category, but I've never, I've never felt that way. I think the new rappers, a lot of things they do, I found it's like, you know, like my tracks, if I have tracks, it will just be like the hype vocals, like the TV track where it's just like the chorus and then me backing up myself on the track. Uh-huh. The, the trend now I saw, I've seen with young rappers is they just play the track, man. And they're just rapping and saying different words over like the, their Spotify playlist. You know? Yeah, yeah. That's like a classic um, boring rapper move to like just put your CD on and yeah. rap over it and oh there's twice as many vocals as supposed to be or maybe slightly less cuz you're not actually rapping the whole thing all the way through I'm not actually totally confident you know all the words to your song um that's a tradition that's traditional that's, that's not a new been, thing we've been seeing bad rap performances do exactly that for ever haven't we I feel like I, I, I guess but now it's like it's like nobody bats an eye I feel like no I just feel like with the SoundCloud generation which I think is you know doing creative amazing stuff but i think that like like kids have said to me like your 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 vocals aren't so strong like i'm used to hearing the whole track behind you uh. and i'm like oh what like what am i doing wrong because it's like with that generation it's so much about the intricacies of like the little vocal nuances you know what i mean and like yeah, yeah. the hurt hurt like uh, weird uh, weird yeah, sounds making, making funny 1960s computer noises with your mouth snip beep beep that kind of stuff that's your chorus beep 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 Beep, 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 That's it, your album's done now. You just finished What's it. What's that chorus? Gucci, 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 Gucci gang, gang, Gucci, Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci, Gucci gang. gang, Gucci gang. Yeah. That was the number one song, man. Can we talk about the young SoundCloud rapper's aesthetic? Um, yeah, but here's the thing. I one, don't, they, I don't all have, to... they all have clown hair. And they will be in their video with yeah. hell of dudes who look like they are from a rap video out of time and place. They could, it could be any time in the last 20 years. They're wearing a sports jersey top and some jeans, and uh-huh. they're showing about two inches of underwear, and they're like, you know, being tough dudes or whatever. They're like posing and waving some cash around or whatever. Maybe you got a firearm, mm-hmm. whatever. And you're like on a stoop or like a, a street corner, and you're like mm-hmm. dancing to the camera. And it is has been exactly the same shot in exactly the same rap video forever, uh-huh. except now the dude who's rapping has clown hair. He looks like a Raggedy Andy doll that went to an Easter egg dying party. And he's got like all this, he's got clown hair. And sometimes he's got elf ears. Sometimes face tat- always face tattoos. That shit is nuts. Yeah. Clown hair and elf ears. Where did that come from? <laughs> Why is that the trend? I'm so happy about that. And I love that they're just in the middle of all the like absolutely traditional looking backup like extras for your rap video. All your buddies yeah. look just like they always looked, but you look like a fucking Martian. It's awesome. I love that. Well, I think that, that can be attributed to the fact that like if you have Instagram or like it's all about how you look. You know, if you're like shocking and colorful, people are like, oh, click. It's all about oh, you're the, right. the they're visual just, metrics. They're a thumbnail of themselves. Yeah. So you have to be like, you have to be, and I think you've succeeded at this because you've always been like the non traditional. You don't like people say you don't look like a rapper back when you started and right. like but but it's always about having your it's having your brand be a visual thing. And if you could do that now and like if you can really commit to a face tattoo and like 
why do they all look, why do they all have the same clown hair though? I guess one of them did it and got hot and then everyone was like, that's just the way rappers think, look now. Yeah, XX Tension was one of the first guys to do that style. Huh. And then. He's the one with the elf ears, isn't he? I don't or, know. There's more than one with elf ears. Maybe it's a generation. It is so funny to me. Because that is dorky as fuck to go in public with elf ears. So you're saying they put on like fake ears? Yes. So, Elf ear, you haven't noticed. That. I was just kind of going along with it, but I don't really know. I don't. I can't think of specifically ever seeing it. Oh man, I wish I knew which one I was thinking of. Who had the we elf have ears? Have to Google it Where's later. The elf ears. It's hard because they literally all have the same clown hair. Yeah, these dudes. But um, you know, it's like they're really prolific and really hardworking. And I think the the challenge for us is as we get older is to like, you know, you don't you never want to be like, oh, these kids today. Back when I was young. Two thirds of them are going to die, unfortunately, from heroin overdoses. You can tell by the way they rap; like literally, all of them are opiate addicts. Well, that's that's another element, right? And they're taking pills, I assume, and not like traditional heroin, but like they all got the. It's like you remember Bob Dylan and Perry Farrell and fucking William S. Burroughs. Like you have that heroin talk, yeah. But that's what mumble rap is. It's just heroin voice. Did you ever listen to Lil Peep, the dude who died in Arizona last year? I did not. His, I always liked his style because he sang, you know? Oh, yeah. He was like singing over this stuff and it was like like beautiful voice. But yeah, like that's another thing about that's the, the oxy epidemic. The, you know what I mean? That's like you hear that in hip hop and that's as old people, that's sad because we remember a time when that wasn't so present, you know? It was, yeah, it was not. If at all. It was not super trendy. In our lifetimes to be on heroin, I think, um, until like the last seven or eight years. Because there's a lot of pain, right? I mean, there's a lot of... I, it just kills you at a really startling rate. And so like, you know, there's generally a prohibition on that. But that makes you cool if you're living right. dangerously. So like, of course, young rock stars... I mean, there was just, there was a big heroin moment in the early 70s, right? Late 60s, early 70s. And like rock mm. stars were always on heroin. And like, that was cool. They're going to live forever. Let them do the thing that's like makes them almost certain to die. And then a lot of them died. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the, that was the whole thing with Lil Peep was like, well, his, his agent or someone, I, I don't want to misquote, but they said, I've been waiting for this call for like for a year, you know? Mm. And that you can't enable your artists. If you know what your artist is to popping those pills and it's glorified in the culture. If that's, you know, if you're, if rapping about drug abuse is going to sell records, then your management is not going to counsel you against it. Exactly. (laughs) Not going to happen, buddy. That's what, uh, that's the devil's bargain that you made having an agent. Well, speaking of good reasons not to have an agent or a manager, (laughs) I remember something you said, like, I think you said it in Columbus on our tour. You said, People, so many people were coming to see us, and, and I was like, what is with this? What's with this, Damien? And you were like, if you are, exist in a subculture that never is concerned with being cool, it's never going to go out of fashion. Yeah. And, and that's awesome. And that's like, that's such a cynical calculation, but it's real. And honestly, <laughs> I kind of modeled that originally on one of my idols, Tom Waits, because he like, in the 1980s, when you were a glimmer in your daddy's fishbowl, or whatever the expression is... <laughs> Um, and I was a little elementary school kid, these, all the records sounded the same. And I mean, no, there was a great variety of records and there were different genres that were popular, but in every radio record that wasn't a rap record, um, and really, you know, in the eighties outside of like, I think New York rap didn't get onto the radio. So like in all radio records in the eighties, the snare is like, 
has all this like fucking reverb on it. Mm-hmm. Sounds like it's in a stadium, and the kick is like this, this like it's this top heavy tinny kind of thump that makes me irritated. But only if I listen to it like that. If I just listen to the song, I love it because it brings me back to way back when. But my point is, you can listen to almost any pop recording and tell whether or not it is from 1981 to 1988 just based on how the drum is produced, drum is mixed, like what effects are on that snare. They all sounded the same. And that was the trend in pop music production. And that was how all those fucking records sounded. And also the synths are pretty easy to like pick out by era because that was like a moment when when like electronic synths exploded and all the bands were using them. Yeah. So like 80s records, so easy to pick out. And over the course of that decade, Tom Waits made these like five or six records that you could not put in any era. Like... They, they could have come from so many different times in American music. And it's not because he's doing like genre pastiche from different decades, different earlier decades, although he does some like folk and jazz stuff. It's um, particularly like that run Swordfish Trombone, Frank's Wild Years, uh, Rain Dogs, and Bone Machine. Those records are just like so just different and new. And they are made of like a bunch of familiar elements, but they're so like kind of off kilter. They they will never sound dated to my ear. I don't, mm. I'm a kind of a fanboy, but they will never sound dated to my ear. And they sound so different than everything else that came out in the '80s, except for one song. His the original recording of "Downtown Train" off of off of Rain Dogs is like a legit of that year pop production. Yeah, um, and it sounds like an '80s song. And you're like, it stands way the fuck out from all his it catalog. Was the one A and R was excited. Yeah, about. I think the record company was yeah. probably like, listen, could we like, could we have our guy mix one of these things, yeah. please? Just Tom. Every year you do this to us, and we can't sell any records. Please do help me out. Um, and he's like, all right, I'll give you Downtown Train. I don't care for that one anyway. But um. <laughs> pretty good good impression which then rod stewart had a hit with later but he covered it it. yeah oh wow um but anyway but anyway that was my model i think going into hip-hop i was like i could try to make a record that sounds like a legit hip-hop record in a way that's familiar to your ear um just like right now i could try to make something i could probably pretty easily make something that sounds like one of these fruity loops soundcloud rappers boring ass grooves but in most cases, uh, with stuff that's popular on radio, like I would not be able to emulate it exactly. It wouldn't sound quite right. It would sound like someone trying and not quite pulling it off because they don't have the expertise and they don't have the money to buy the expertise. Yeah. And so I would have sort of slightly failed on that front. Plus, it would sound dated in the year. Like, what if I just actively ignore those urges, the urges to like, emulate the thing that sounds cool because you know the stuff that's trendy sounds cool to everyone's ear including mine it's like oh yeah that sounds new and fresh even though i've like heard it 50 times from 50 different artists weirdly that sounds like very now right now yeah you know seven years ago it would have been dubstep or whatever it's like oh that sounds like that sounds futuristic right now but wait a minute like two years from now it's going to be in car commercials what's my record going to sound like then yeah it's going to sound like something that should be in a car commercial you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think from, you know, for my style, I've always like done a little more like 
parody or like connecting to other genres or like referencing certain things. And like, you know, like my crunk song definitely mm-hmm. is dated now and definitely is like problematic because it, it runs the risk of being parody in a way that's like, I don't know. It feels like, it's like if you emulate something and, and you're doing it in a way that's mm, not perfect, it's disrespectful maybe I found. Potentially, right? Yeah. yeah. And so it's like, so you're saying that like Tom Waits, you've, you wanted to build your own style and your own sound. You weren't trying to be hip hop in a specific way, but I would also argue that you have like De La Soul influences and like a lot of like, like old school golden era hip hop. I think a lot of my stuff probably sounds like early 90s hip hop in some way just because that's you know how I cut my teeth as a listener and that'll just always be what... I naturally kind of am drawn toward as I'm as a producer. Um, so yeah, it's not like I will ever lay claim to a, a vision of my own music or to have transcended space and time like I wanted to, right? But um, but I but that has always if I ever feel like myself trying to do the thing that I heard recently, I will stop myself and remind myself to try and do the opposite. That's cool. And it's not and it's not to be cool, but it's just to like save myself from the like ravages of fucking time marching onward, which is, is inevitably is going to do. And it works when you are able to then also like you've had, you have themes that are like old school, like it's pitch dark. That's the name of the song, right? Yeah. It's like you, t- you talk about that old school game, which people remember, right? It's, it's always yeah. nostalgic. I mean, there's one, there's one in particular called Zork. Um, but it's that, yeah, that song is about that whole, kind of game where there was no yeah. graphics and you were just kind of in an interactive story with the writer like typing what you do and then the game tells you what happens so next thing and this I want to talk about this for a second and then we'll wrap up about what's going on for the rest of the year for you I want to talk about that moment when you've talked about this in a million interviews when you first coined what's the word Portman do of nerdcore and hardcore <laughs> well, you created nerdcore as a genre name, like that moment you talk about. You were I, here's a story as I remember you telling a million times. You're rapping into your computer. You had a mic yeah. set up. You had yeah. a Boba Fett action figure on your monitor, and you're like, "I'm it's a probably hard- a Yoda." Yoda. Okay, you te- you tell it. Am I kind of <laughs> on the right path? You saw your Star Wars figure, and you're like, "I'm fronting, and I'm I'm a nerdy guy, and I'm hardcore." Hmm, this is almost like this could be considered. I did definitely have Star Wars toys in that room. Okay. I would probably made up the part where I was looking at them when I came up with it. They were definitely like, I was surrounded by my normal just nerd bullshit that I like to surround myself with. And what year was this? comforts me. This is the first half of 2000. Mm, Okay. So I had... I had been thrilled as a four-track user... I was just talking with Creative Mindframe about this at the PAX booth the other day about like he's 30 years old and he couldn't believe the struggle we used to do to try and make anything with a four track. I was telling him how it works and he was just like, what? Yeah. (laughs) Um, But that's how we used to do it. And then I'd been doing, I'd been working in the computer, but it was like you would pull up a track and then you would mix paste with another thing. So I was like, take my old four track stuff and bring it in like a track at a time and then try and like, and I had new effects right in the computer audio station I could like mess with. And then, but it was like guess and check, you know, and you're like stepping backwards and taking the files again being like, okay, okay, I'll try the reverb a little different and then I'll mix paste them together. And it was, so you couldn't monitor it. It was also terrible. Yeah. There was, there was not multi-tracking. Right. Yeah. And then, 
all of a sudden, like the new version of Cool Edit Pro came out, and that was the first time I saw some software that, like, you were able to do this stuff with offboard hardware and Pro Tools prior to that, but this was the first time that you and your like semi pro grade sound card and Cool Edit Pro, which I'll admit in my early 20s, I was just pirating, um, you could take these things that you already had and have suddenly a CD quality multi-track studio. And that was like, holy shit. There wasn't inline effects yet. You were still doing a lot of kind of stepping and guess and checking with, while applying effects. Um, but you could like mute that one and try it again and then AB those. And like, like they were all in, all your tracks were in the mix with their volume levels and pans and stuff. Was there like latency when you tracked to a, like a drum or something? Or was it pretty instant? Um, there was, it's funny, the cards kind of worked better in terms of latency than they do these days, but they were, uh, because they would go straight into your PCI bus on your motherboard. But um, they were much worse at knowing what their own latency was and automatically, like you don't have to, you no longer have to measure latency. Right. Um, Back then I had to point a mic at the speaker, um, play one track, record it, and see what the exact offset was, run that about 50 times to make sure I was getting like a solid consistency and then go in uh, somewhere in Cool Edit. I think there was like, you could do it like by number of samples and tell it exactly how much to offset all incoming recording from that card. And then that would, you're, that and would, then that would, that would automatically from then on, like yeah. once you had it perfectly measured and you told it what it was, then it would automatically like deal with it from then on. Cool. Um, now it just works. Like it, <laughs> the hardware has figured out how to tell what it's, it, I assume it has, it's just syncing up a couple of different clocks so that it can put the, put everything back together. Um, as it comes in, but anyway, where were we? So you're no. So oh, okay. So multi-tracking yeah. works, right? Yeah. All of a sudden, and I was so excited. Um, and like that night, I made a rap song called "Speed Queen." Um, and is that is that on the first record? It's not on a record. Okay. Uh, it's an, there's an old demo of it. I took. I just. I was like going through my CD folder. I was like, "What am I gonna?" Because I couldn't. I'd been doing, I'd been doing like recording all through college and all that four track stuff and all kinds of genre stuff um, because we would write these rock musicals, which were actually like not just rock and roll, there were tons of genres, a lot of pastiche stuff. Um, but we would write these and perform them in the summers, Gabby and I and a bunch of other folks we knew from the East Bay. So I, who knows what I would have recorded if it were the middle of the day and some other friends were available, but it was oh. like nighttime. There was oh. nobody else to work with, nobody to play any instruments for me. So I'm like, well, I'm going to make a hip-hop track with samples. So I'm like going through my CD thing. I pull out like the Louis Prima and the Fiona Apple for uh, Buonasera and Sleep to Dream. I thought those were thematically related. So I wrote a song about um, methamphetamine and not sleeping um, over those two samples and like hacked it all together and made the first rap song I made. And I went on vacation right after that in the Middle East, and I was coming down Mount Sinai, smoking this terrible joint that these Coptic Christians had sold me down at the youth hostel. And I was like, I shall not front a little, because I'm front a lot. I climbed Mount Sinai and got high at the top. <laughs> um, 
Oh, wow. I thought that was... So that was like, that was when I decided I would use the name MC Front a lot. So what, say the line one more time, if you don't mind. I shall not front a little, because I'm front a lot. I uh-huh. climbed Mount Sinai and got high at the top. So you named yourself in that track? I started that using that name in that track. I think I had a photograph that my friend Robin Ganellis had taken of me rapping with one of Gobby's bands in like a, at Blake's maybe, in, on Telegraph in yeah, Berkeley. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. Like maybe a year earlier and I had taken a whiteout pen and I thought I looked like a douche in the picture and I had written MC Frontalot's Raptacular Hip Hop Fun Fest on the photograph in whiteout pen as an insult to myself. Um, (laughs) But then I remembered that as I was smoking pot walking down this mountain. And where, the ten, that, where the Ten Commandments had come from. Yeah, I was going to say, that's, like a, that's very poetic. That's, I didn't yeah, realize so that. Um, that's a, a, my one pot-smoking song. <laughs> a nod to the 90s, which were then over. So I recorded that song when I got home. So that was probably January or February of 2000. I think I did one more song where I called myself MC Frontalot, and then I think the fourth one was Nerdcore Hip Hop. So I'm like, oh, I'm like, it was fun. I kept doing it. And I was like, I am making raps by myself into my computer. And I'm interested in this because I'm like psyched about my Delta 1010 sound card mm-hmm. more than I am psyched about like my ability to rap or make beats. Right. I'm like fascinated with my ability to like simulate what professional music sounds like and what professional musicians sound like using my computer skills. Like that's fucking dorky. That's not why people do this. So I'm going to call it nerdcore hip hop just for the course of one song. But as soon as I finished the song, I was like, that's a, that's clearly going to be a salient bit of cultural nonsense. (laughs) I bet I should just keep using that and have it be my brand. Cause I was, because the job I was doing back then was like, ha, like we would have branding meetings and shit. Like I was writing okay. ad banners and contests for websites. It was the first dot com bubble. Yeah, and there was all this money flying around in San Francisco, and I was like soaking it up. I would smoke pot and hang out in the dog park all day in Dubose Triangle and like write ad banner jokes for like seventy five bucks an hour. Like mm-hmm. that was my job. Yeah. Um, wow. But then that left me plenty of time to like make raps. So like I had a little branding meeting with myself and I'm like, I'm going to keep saying, I'm going to keep, keep this nerd theme. Um, cause that's me. Like, so now suddenly and that was the Bay area then too. I mean, yeah, nerd to be, I, it, it was like, it was great to be a nerd right then. Cause like the money was flying out of like all of the fucking communication managers from Waukegan were coming into town and getting plenty of jobs. But if you were at all nerdy and knew how to use any kind of software, advanced software proficiently, you definitely were going to have a fancy ass job during the first dot-com bubble. It's interesting because Soul from Anticon, I think I remember here, like when I talked to him, he moved to the Bay Area and he was um, doing something similar, like doing web design or something but at night he was starting and running Anticon and it would have been like the that's same way more era. ambitious see he was thinking of himself as a musician I was thinking of myself as a home and recording enthusiast who liked poetry who liked rap yeah oh I loved writing and of yeah. course I loved rap music you were English um, major too right yeah, yeah and I didn't think I didn't think anyone would want to hear me or think of me as a real musician 
And I made this web page where like the joke was I'm concealing my identity from everyone. Like there was a photo gallery of other rappers, like famous rappers with their faces blurred out, <laughs> you know, like Eminem and Biggie Smalls and, Oh, you're almost like MC Hawking, like this, who is this person, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, he and I hooked up real early in this process, like 2001, 2002. Um, and isn't he on Nerdcore Rising? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. um, he was doing something very similar. It was like he had a, it was, it was a project more than like an idea of a, a music career. Um, yeah. But like, you know, I had control over some web servers and... <laughs> you bought the domain, huh? I, was, I put the songs up, um, and Penny Arcade noticed them, and eventually the fan base developed to the point where I got rid of my web clients and, and here we had are. fans instead. I tell you always, I tell everyone, it's better to have fans than clients. Highly recommend it. Because they are more actively waiting? They're more passionate so you don't have to have phone meetings with them where they tell you to change everything that you just worked on all night well that's if your fa- <laughs> if your fans are if you if you have major label fans you know that's like that's that's you have to put up with a lot of that and you have the gamble of I whether it's going to work or that's not. true i think you're right i think one of the things you said that's interesting is like the technology is what drove you and inspired you and made you realize you could do this and i think when we look at the history of hip-hop like cool herc with the breakbeat and like 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 Grand Wizard Theodore and scratching and moving on with like sampling technology. Mm-hmm. Hip hop, every moment in hip hop has been about some artistic person being fascinated with the technology. That's very true. And I think that's like, in a way, that then connects with that tradition. And where you were in 20 years ago in the, in the times frame of things, like till now, I think it's just real cool that like people took advantage, took notice, and you took advantage of that moment. And it was like, when did you first realize like, when did you first realize that, oh, shoot, I'm recognized, I get recognized in public? <laughs> when did that happen? Because um, I've been with, this guy, with you many times and it's happened. Right. It's funny. It doesn't happen that much anymore because I've been slowed down so much. But um, when the, the height of that was probably when the movie was playing around in like Nagin. So this woman, Nagin Farsad, directed a feature doc about me and my band when we went on our first tour in 2006 and that came out in 2008 um, and it played at the film festival in South by and then she kind of toured it around the country and played it at art houses for like short short engagements and it ended up on Netflix for and a then it long was on time. Netflix for a long time yeah and I was touring um, fairly often around then 2008 2009 2010 um, and I was like you know I had like a commercial on G4 as did you um like that was the most my face was kind of out there and there were a lot of there I was a lot particularly of particularly from the yeah and there was a lot of press it was before magazine press it was before like the thing that everyone now like understands perfectly well where like nerd culture bullshit is just top money pop culture stuff like the marvel the superhero movies and the i mean lord of the rings for god's sake there's a Star Wars every year. Ready Player One, right? Right. So, like, nerd culture stuff is no longer remarkable or interesting in and of itself. Like, someone having an idea to do something specifically and intentionally situated inside of nerd culture that previously hadn't been raises zero eyebrows and no no competent press person on Earth would approach that as though it were a fascinating new idea that they had a scoop about, right? But in the mid-aughts, 
the opposite was true. Like every journalist who heard about it was like, what? Oh my God, I could write a low effort piece about that and immediately get it past my editor and fucking go to Cabo for the weekend or what, I don't know what journalists used to do back when print journalism paid money, but it was really easy to get covered for a while. Cause it was a surprising headline. Nerd. It just rapping. sounded like a good idea. Yeah. yeah. To people they are like, Oh, nerdcore hip hop. Oh, I get it. Well, that uh, I understand it. You've said it. As soon as you said it, I understood it. Therefore it will be easy to write my article about it. And no one will be confused. And they ran a, <laughs> ran a picture of you looking like just a, just looking like you do handsome and, and unique, but like it's like it's like automatically a surprising thing. The um so anyway, yeah, that wore off because ironically, the whole culture shaped itself around nerdcore. <laughs> why do you why do you think that happened? Just because technology got so fast? Because I mean, why her weird weird out talks about why white and nerdy was such a big hit for him is because when everyone started to realized that the nerd culture was something cool yeah. but but like how did it go to replace cool with profitable i think sure that's about it like blame sam raimi who and i was a horror movie nerd in seventh grade eighth grade and he made the movie did he do spider-man too he yeah. did spider-man spider-man 2 and spider-man 3 and when spider-man made a zillion dollars that was when the whole movie industry was like wait a minute we're gonna focus all of our big guns on superheroes and see if we can like ride this trend for two years or whatever. But then yeah. it just never went away. Right. Um, and then Disney bought star Wars and was like, Oh, you know, it's a, I feel like six of these movies every two and a half decades is not fast enough. We're going to put one out every year. Right. Um, and let's, uh, while we're at it, let's have another like 12 to 13 hours of Hobbit movies. And you know, let's, let's have nine different, Marvel properties on TV. And ironically, I think comic books themselves are no more popular than they've ever been. Um, they did not it, yeah. get swept up into the huge money machine. But TV and movies, which is the meat of our culture. Um, and ga- I guess games based on these properties too. And of course games. Gaming, I'll tell you, when phones came out is when gaming leapt out of the just nerdy yeah, part of our culture and into everybody's pocket, and it's things that like the the snobby and shitheady game gamers like uh, you know despise like um, the casual games that turned everybody into a video game aficionado, right? Like Candy Crush is a video game. You yeah. turn your nose up at it, but it's a video game. Yeah, and those people are gamers, and they are gaming. Um, and you know the person playing poker obsessively is a gamer, and he's gaming. Nobody's ever argued with that. He doesn't even have a little piece of electronics involved. Um, You're candy, saying like on candy crush is gambling, is what yeah. I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, on a on a card table. So the so the culture is just shifted, but like you were a maverick and on on the front of the I was wave. A li- I was lucky to be a little ahead of the curve on that, I guess. Yeah, and I feel that way too. Like. In, in that we were different scenes, but when we met, we're both like, oh, we, we both have this authentic love for, for music and rap, and we're both willing to get in a van and put up with each other <laughs> and for nine weeks and drive all over the country and slang shirts. So we did that song about how like we're really in the, the, in the t-shirt business. Yes, lamenting the fact that we have to be good at being t-shirt salesmen when we wish we could just be good at rapping. Well, now we're good at podcasting. Well, you always have been. <laughs> I'm okay at being on people's podcasts. I've never had one of my own. 
Well, it's uh, it's always the bridesmaid. <laughs> you've got an album to make, and on that, um, any plans for the rest of the year? I'm sure you got you're doing packs. Uh, before that, even I'm going on Joko cruise. Oh yeah, cool. Um, in February, if uh, if you, the listener, have a huge amount of money and intended already to spend it on a lavish vacation at sea, you should definitely decide to come on this nerd cruise and, and pick that one. Because all other cruises, as far as I can tell, are just stupid. But this one's fun. <laughs> that does sound cool. Full of comedians and musicians, uh, all of whom are dorky. And Jonathan Colton, of course, the headliner of it. Um, then I've got, I don't know, South by probably, pretty sure. Uh, hopefully I can get to do some more PAXs. PAXs are like way more fun when I have a new album and people are coming to my booth on a regular basis. No, I feel you. No sitting around trying to bark them down in the middle of the afternoon lull. Um, what else? Oh, I'm going to Anchorage. Oh, cool. Where, where are you playing there? I can't remember the name of the festival. I think it has the word nerd in it. Cool. They do comedy and music. In fact, maybe you know because I think they brought you up for it. Is it is that recently. Coots? Is Sarah Peterson the agent? Probably. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I did. I played it with Chris a few years ago, and then I did it myself last year. It's pretty great. They're yeah. awesome up there, man. Sweet. And they, I've and never been to that state. I shout out to Alaska, and I've all the people who've supported and loved the nerd rap over the years up there, you'll have fun. And and try to like, if you can, try to see if they can take you. Like if you go a little bit north of the city, you're like instantly in the wilderness. Ooh. It's gorgeous. Have you ever been on a helicopter, Andrew? Uh, no. Me neither. That, Do you think I could take a, like one of those? Actually, I have, and I did it in Alaska. Actually, it was a, bi- a water plane. A biplane. Biplane through the mountains. On the water. On the water. Okay, that sweet. Should I do that instead of the helicopter ride through the mountains? Uh, yeah, that would be tight. I okay. know you can do it. There's some that... I, I was in Homer. I did a TEDx talk there, and we did a tour around... It's called the Harding Ice Field. It was called Gruing Glacier. But like, you can just just pay, and then, and they'll take you up, and it's really fun. So you should do that. Have fun in Alaska. Thank you. Proud I'm of you, gonna. man. And then I also I want to get on the road. You know, mm, that more, sounds cool. More time before my knees completely go. So, uh, you are, what are you doing in the fall? Like, yeah, maybe do some shows or I don't know. Or Yeah, you want to go maybe do like a big long run this fall? Maybe we can talk to Schaefer and Raheem, see what they're thinking. Yeah, because we got to get rid of the remaining shirts that have all four of our heads on them in a fucking uh, full circle. <laughs> we didn't do, we didn't do the West Coast. We didn't do the Midwest. So, there's we some didn't do cities. shit. We yeah. played. We played nine shows. I'm trying to do in nine nights, and then we stopped, as though we had fulfilled our obligation to well, touring. It test we had not. I'm try- I want to do. I want to do like five or five or six weeks this this fall, but I want to break them up. You know what I mean? Sounds great to me. And like, and I think we could figure out. A- anyway, this is this is an exclusive. But um, Schaefer seemed down. I got to talk to Raheem, see what he's up to. He and I finished a record, and we're trying to like figure out how we're going to put it out and promote it. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that I think it would be really cool. So, all right, well, I'll announce and we'll we'll discuss what we can do. But that would be tight. Sweet. All right, you heard it here first, kids. Um, and do you, what's the new record called, or or do you want to wait? The new to record's called that? "Internet Sucks." <laughs> um, I'll, you can play the rough, rough, rough draft of the title track right now on your podcast if you want. Oh, that would be an honor. All right. All right, we're gonna we'll we'll end with this Damien's. Uh, Demo, thank you so much for being on the show, man. Thanks for your time. And, Thanks uh, for having me. We'll see you on the road. Peace. Peace. You are listening to a preview.
Sometimes I wish I loved you Sometimes I don't know what to do Sometimes I wish I loved you Sometimes I don't know what to do Sometimes I look back on our earliest love affairs I had so many hairs And you were made of everyone everywhere Or so I imagined Actually just a bunch of me types Typing into mud games Geeking on the weeknights Hunting drug recipe text files With a gopher client You're supposed to be studying Oh no, but you're so defiant It was giant Usenet porn over the dial-up Over the rickety PBX Which might go silent Internet was precious to me And it remains so But it isn't like in the early days The achy pains grow Ever more insistent They get inside my melon They tell me pretty subtly I mean, besides the yelling That I don't love you anymore Internet You used to be a safe home For my nerd heart and my intellect Now you got so much hate That you just gotta interject Now you got too many chefs up in your Surprise! We are going on the road. We actually did this podcast before we had our tour planned, so that's pretty tight. You can come see us this October. For tour dates and tickets, check out nerdcoretour.com, baby. And uh, I wanted to end with the last week I ended with OG Original Gamer. I wanted to end with another collab. This was a remix of a song I did for Frenelat's album, uh, Captains of Industry. And then I redid it for my Indie Rocket Science mixtape over the Wiz Khalifa Black and Yellow beat. So this became Black and Yellow t-shirts. Thank you all for listening. MCLars.com, Patreon.com slash MCLars for new music. And uh, we'll see you next week. We've got Schaefer the Dark Lord. Hey, Lars. How do you make any money if you give away your mixtape for free? I'm really glad you asked, Ollie. We've got t-shirts there. Black and yellow, black and yellow, black and yellow, black and yellow. Uh-huh. You 
you know what they are Black and yellow, black and yellow, black and yellow, black and yellow My boyfriend is always managing his vocal takes Playing up his new persona every day he integrates You wanna hear a rap about a game from 82? Good news, MC Finalize got songs for you Full of rhymes that he drops, pretty hot Make him rock with the style he concocts Nerdcore, hip-hop, flashlight on his head Cause homeboy went and started it Grabbing your allowances, he knows how to market it My man Lars has got the talent and he flaunts it And he drops fat hits every 100th concept the onset of his rapping is blunt It beats you up in the manner that he call post-punk You know the fans can't get enough Always holler for more Think they're even louder than they were before The previous encore Just hope they let him off stage soon Bible business in the back Where the hoodies are strewn Come on Yeah bro, we got t-shirts And they're Black and yellow, black and yellow, black and yellow, black and yellow Yeah dude, different colors Such as Green and purple, green and purple, green and purple, green and purple This is indeed Transaction that necessitates money Not with the true cunning of the kids in the know But you look at them cheering Notice what? They don't sew Don't go to the print shop and silkscreen their own Yet they're always needing something to cover the torso That's why MC Lars and I provide a product Set atop high fashion inventory You got it, costume glasses, mouth pads Robot USBs, captains, are we? Of what? Industry, Rockefeller, Adam Smith Rock a seller just like this Rock a crowd of ratty kids So front a lot, tell me this Is it all about the Washingtons Or all about the art? Indie rap, we're into that Following our hearts But part of the job I mean the other part from Karen Is taking t-shirt money Like we're modern robber parents Yeah bro, we got t-shirts And they're Black and yellow, black and yellow Black and yellow, black and yellow Yeah dude, different colors Such as White and orange, white and orange White and orange, white and orange This is indie rocket science And it's Horus Records, Horus Records Horus Records, Horus Records Good luck chasing royalties Mr. Wiskalifa, 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 Wiskalifa Well we know every fabric weight, every dropship price Every line screen density designs are precise Cotton woven so nice, blind eyes to child labor You as the consumer are the lucky money saver And we savor all your savvy as it leads you to our wares Up in the gilded age of geekery we so sneakily prepared This foolproof method of making just the shirts you want With my top hat and my monocle and your money I abscond You see Horace Wreckers harvesting the forest near your home For the paper in the liner Notes of every disc you own You should have known that our sweatshirts were pure baby seal Go ahead and treat yourself You love the way it feels The appeals of the audience Get back on stage Where you at? By the merch booth trying to get paid Got a hundred people covered Though their arms stay bare The only way We get to do it Check the, the logos they wear Because Guess what? At the merch booth We got Shirts and hoodies Shirts and hoodies Shirts and hoodies Shirts and hoodies Please stop Health insurance, health insurance, health insurance. This is indeed rocket science, and it's Horus Records, Horus Records, Horus Records, Horus Records. Apologies for ruining your track, Mr. Wiz Khalifa, Wiz Khalifa, Wiz Khalifa, Wiz Khalifa.